You are listening to the Enormo Cast. If there's one word in climbing that gets me excited to tune in, pay attention, and be inspired, it's Babsy. That's right. Nobody climbs like the Enorma Cast well known crush, Babsy Zangirl. Nobody. And Black Diamond has supported Babsy and her boyfriend, whatever his name is, through big walls, hard sport, and hair-raising trad for several years. And now Beattie is offering the Babsy edition of their legendary Solution Harness. Light enough for sport, burly enough for walls. The Solution is the do-everything-anytime harness. And the Babsy edition has the rise and fit for a woman's body. And I believe each and every harness is blessed by Babsy herself, though don't call me on that. So do you want to climb like Babsy Zangirl? Well, let's face it, we're probably all out of luck on that front. But women climbers out there can at least get a glimpse of greatness and feel good in a Babsy Edition Solution Harness from Black Diamond. And remember, Black Diamond is a proud sponsor of the EnormaCast, and I'd like to think Babsy tunes in once in a while too. Do you like compliments? Compliments are good, right? From the outright, straight-to-your-face statements of praise to the knowing look and slight chin-jut from your favorite bro at the gym, compliments can turn your frown upside down in an instant. And hands down, of all the gear I pedal on the EnormaCast, the item that receives the most out-of-the-blue compliments are the splitter hats from PeterWGilroy.com. You know, the ones with the titanium plaques and badges. That's right, titanium on a hat. Peter started making these hats a few years ago and has kept the styles coming with designs inspired by the great mountain ranges of the world. So if you're one of those people with a head and who enjoys random praise from friends and strangers alike, go to PeterWGilroy.com and check out the splitter hats and all the wearable art that Peter creates. Even better, receive a discount and help out the EnormaCast by entering Enormo at checkout. That's PeterWGilroy.com and enter Enormo at checkout. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, a big house. place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. Out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the EnormaCast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the EnormaCast. This is your host, Chris Galoose. It is July 16th, 2021, about 1130 here in Lander. And on today's show, John the Verm Sherman. 
But before we get to that, I wanted to let you know what I was up to last few days. Headed up to Bozeman, kind of a round trip here to Lander, and uh, climbed up there with some buddies in the Bozeman area and came across a place called which, oh, what's that? My producer is telling me that you don't talk about what you climb in Montana. So anyway, much of this area was developed by the Pallister brothers, Eric and Kyler Pallister, among others, but I know those guys were involved up there. And it turns out that Kyler, young guy from up there in Bozeman, was diagnosed a few months ago with leukemia. And I wanted to bring that up because thinking about all the people who develop areas, all those bolts you clip, all the trails you walk up and things like that, we have a debt. I think to these people, and they usually do not call us on that debt. Sometimes they might have a source for all that hardware, but nobody ever pays them for their time. So thinking about your debt to developers and even just our desire to help others and help other climbers, I wanted to bring up Kyle Pallister's GoFundMe. It's Throwdown for Kyle Pallister over at GoFundMe, but if you just Google that and get over to the GoFundMe page, it's there to help him with this very difficult battle. He's facing, although there's been some good news in terms of the chemotherapy seeming to be very effective, uh, but now he's looking at a bone marrow transplant as well. So if you were thinking about donating to anything, even if you're thinking about donating to the Enormacast, don't for now. Put it over there. So go look that up, see who he is, and there's been some incredibly big donations over there, but if everybody even just bought him a cheap-ass cup of coffee or the equivalent of, it would put him over the top over there at that GoFundMe. And since I had a great time climbing at the area that he developed, and like I said, clipping those bolts he put in and climbing the routes that were developed by him, I thought I'd bring it up here. And uh, I also went over there and donated. Bozeman scene, great scene. This kid, he's not a kid. He's a kid to me. He's a big part of it. And he needs your help. So check it out. Okay, on to John Sherman. I don't think he needs much of an introduction. The reluctant, ambivalent creator of the V-scale that rules bouldering, at least here in the United States, and a character, long-time climber. He actually has developed probably more boulders than anybody in the U.S. Took a break from it, started watching birds and taking photographs of California condors, and then he's back into it. John has an ongoing project that's being documented in an upcoming film called Old Man Lightning. And after 30 years, he's trying to go back and repeat Midnight Lightning three decades ago. And that's an ongoing saga that we get into here. But John's fighting through some injuries. He's still at it, still trying to get that thing done, hopefully this fall, and get some points on the board for the olds. A bit of history here, some good laughs, and some great stories from John Sherman. And here's the interesting thing. Turns out that John Sherman's climbed all sorts of shit, including making attempts on the north face of the Eiger, right? John Sherman, Waco Tanks, all the way to the Eiger. If there's one thing that's held true in climbing for 30 years, it's that you can't kill the damn mythos. That's right. Sportiva's famous mythos climbing shoe is still as popular as ever after 30 years edging, smearing, and crack climbing worldwide. And to celebrate the start of its dirty 30s, Sportiva's issuing the Mythos 30th Anniversary Edition. Same cult classic design, but built from eco-friendly materials and manufacturing, and with a jaunty color twist. 
How jaunty? Well, you know how those Euros roll. What also remains is the comfort and performance of the stalwart classic. Comfort and performance, you cry. I call foul, Calouse. That really is the magic of the mythos, especially if your quiver needs an all-day shoe that will caress your toes like a trip to the spa. Because let's face it, aggressive shoes are great for the short shots, but it's hard to climb your best on pitch 12 when you feel like somebody pounded your toes flat with a ball-peen hammer. So if you're feeling legendary, then have a look at the 30th anniversary mythos and the more subdued flash of the eco-mythos at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. I have a question about this this film, um, Old Man Lightning. I, I, I'm kind of confused. There's a trailer, but is there a film? Uh, that's still in the works. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It it's, uh, wasn't supposed to be in the works this long, but I've had a nasty string of injuries. Uh-huh. So, But I'm, I'm still dedicated to that project. Oh, you are dedicated to the project. Yeah. So is that kind of the thing? Is it's it's on hold until you just, I mean, not, not on hold, but the film will be done when you decide it's done when when you do the uh or when if, if i decide that i've had, had enough. enough yeah but i'm not like the type who really uh gives up on things easily right on so, i say i'm gonna do something i want to do right, right on you know? so what what uh kind of pulled you how, how did they pull you out of retirement so to speak at, at least the the trailer I watched implied that you hadn't been climbing for a while um you know the the running joking is he'd let yourself go a bit uh, shooting birds, sitting in a chair. So what sort of pulled you out of that and got you back into this project? Well, the, the defining moment would have been uh, went out to Canyon Diablo to go climbing and was getting on the nice gently overhanging 11A warm-up top rope thing, <laughs> something that I would never have imagined I would ever have trouble doing that, no matter how far I let myself go. Uh-huh. I mean, it would have just been the standard warm-up any other time during you know, the last you know, 45 years or so, <laughs> and I failed on it. And I, I was happy to see my girlfriend uh, do it, but I was like going like, wow, I should be doing this too now. <laughs> and I've gotten so out of shape that uh, I need to do something about it. Uh, it. It was astounding to me. I just didn't realize if you take your foot off the gas at my age, you get out of shape really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought I could coast to the finish. And be just fine, you know. I was gonna like, oh, I'll always be able to go out and, you know, there's plenty of great five tens out there to climb and whatnot. And and then found out that, wow, leading some of those five tens is starting to get kind of scary <laughs> <laughs> and feeling kind of hard. How and, old are you? Uh, this, I'm sixty two. Sixty two. Okay, so I just turned fifty myself. And why do you look older than me? <laughs> Terrible light in here. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I'm totally like starting to feel that foot on the gas thing, you know, like it feels like it can only be weeks, you know, between climbing that you start to kind of like slip. But had you been climbing th- through that period or were you uh, completely kind of out of it? No, I wasn't com- ever completely right. out of it. But like I say, I had uh, I'd let my foot off the gas mm-hmm. and I found a lot actually in bird photography that has parallels in climbing. I mean, as far as the sense of accomplishment mm-hmm. I would get if I got a cool bird photo, I mean, I think people look at, say, bouldering. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you could take a tourist in Yosemite and they'll see Columbia Boulder, Midnight Lightning, or whatever, and they think, well, obviously it's got to be much easier to climb that than to climb El Capitan. El Capitan's like this giant thing that's so impressive. 
Well, what they don't realize is for everybody who does Midnight Lightning, probably 50 or 100 people do El Cap. Or more. And I would say, I yeah. would say it's a much I mean, more than that. But it could, yeah. could be much more. So we see birds every day, and at least if we go outside, you know. So how hard can it be to get a good photograph of a bird? Like, how hard could it be to climb that boulder? It turns out it's, it's really hard mm-hmm. to get a good photograph. And that kind of challenge really appealed to that part of me that enjoyed that challenge in climbing. And so I was, I was getting that same sense of accomplishment, mm-hmm. doing something that was very non-physical. Mm-hmm. I mean, you sit and you wait and you wait. and You have to have an amazing amount of patience. Well, let me delve into that just a little bit because it's, uh, you know, the parallels are interesting. But also, I mean... You know, I think your career has been, you know, the hallmark of it has been exploration, has been, you know, quite a bit of sort of frenetic energy, uh, developing boulders, finding new places to boulder, uh, you know, marching through the woods, marching up the hill, marching across the desert, whatever it took to find these boulders over the years. So, you know, what was it like to be, you know, you just said you have to have all this patience and it's kind of a sedentary sport. Like, what was the switch? How was it to be able to just sit there and in one place and wait for, for a guy like you? You still had to find the place. Right. And you had to find the bird. But, I mean, you know, once, once I found a new boulder field, say, then it was just a matter of doing the climbing. Mm-hmm. And so that didn't require patience unless you're waiting for the weather to get good, say, or something. You know, you could just start in on the development right away. And I, I didn't really think of myself as a very patient person until I took up wildlife photography, but found out that I actually have heaps and heaps of patience uh, when I'm motivated that way. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wonder about the origins a lot of times of climbers and maybe we'll get to your origins too, but what was it that, that tipped you into this, uh, this taking pictures of birds thing and, you know, investing in the equipment because that telephoto lens is kind of a monster um, that, that I saw in the pictures oh, of it. So yeah, well, what tipped you I over got, into that for a minute? I, I call it, I call it the baby Jesus. Cause for what I paid for it, it better perform miracles. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, my girlfriend, Don, she was, uh, doing a series of, um, portraits of people with interesting jobs for Arizona highways magazine. And often she would recruit me to be the photo assistant. Mm-hmm. And one of the people she was photographing was the, head of the Condor Recovery Project in Northern Arizona. And so we went up there to take uh, pictures of this guy, Chris Parrish, uh, amazing human, and you know, took us up to where they were uh, giving health checks on these condors they had trapped and stuff. And so I was in close proximity to these birds. It just blew me away. If you, if you haven't been right up next to a condor, it, it's, it's mind-blowing. And I got very interested that particular bird, because they are so tremendously rare, a little more than 500 of them in existence in the entire world right now. And uh, back in the 80s, there was only uh, 22 at one point. I got along really well uh, with Chris Parrish, bonded over some beer and stuff, and uh, started going back up there and photographing more and more of these condors and to the point when I finally decided to make it a goal to try and photograph every single individual condor in the Arizona Utah population, which then took me several years to, to, to find them all. But they all have wing tags, so you can identify them. Mm-hmm. It's not like you know, you're trying to go out and shoot every raven in the neighborhood, and you don't know which ones you got, which ones. And then I could let the condor 
project, use the photos for whatever publicity purposes they need, whatever fundraising and such. It was a very meaningful project for me. You know, I felt that I was doing something good for the world and maybe something a little less selfish than climbing. Yeah. So let's go back into into the selfish world then of climbing and delve back into your- oh, Where we belong. Yeah, where we belong. <laughs> exactly. Where everyone listening belongs. You know, I don't know your entire, obviously, history. You and I, you're, you're a little bit older than me, 10 years older than me. Um, so you were someone of note when I first started climbing. And even in the area where I started climbing, which was up in Fort Collins, so Horsetooth Reservoir is there. Um, Waco was just being talked about. The V-scale didn't exist yet, at least in, a, in sort of a nation or worldwide kind of level. So I kind of want to go back there and think about like these eras and we can we can jump around or we can go in order. But one of the ones that really sticks out to me because it was the first place I did an international trip to is Arapiles in australia and, um, <laughs> one of my favorite places yeah and it's it was one of mine as well you know um when, when that happened that was my first international trip and uh you know the the bosom of australia australia welcomed me as they will and i just kind of wanted to talk about how you ended up there and i don't think you were there that long but what was your impression of the place you know how did it affect you as a climber and sort of as john sherman and and your reputation um, coming out of that place. Well, I went uh, my first trip. I went over there with Dan Michael mm-hmm. from uh, Boulder. Yep, and uh, excellent climber. And uh, he had been there before, so he kind of knew the logistics and all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a break from work. Well, I I had contract subcontracting job that I could take tons of time off. So you know, I'd, I'd only work a hundred days a year and climb the rest. I was there for about two and a half months. And I thought I was going to go see you know, more of Australia than just Mount Arapiles and Natamuk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I got there. The climbing was so good. The scene was so cool. The, even the non-climbing locals were so friendly. I mean, we would go down to the pub every night and, and you know, play darts and shoot pool with the, with the local non-climbers. You know, they're mostly you know, sheep shearers and agriculturalists and such. I mean, that place is a blast. I, mean, I really like that style of climbing. It's very similar to El Dorado as far as face climbing, but on clean gear. Mm-hmm. But even a, a level beyond El Dorado in that a lot of these climbs you'd take off on in Arapiles and you wouldn't see any gear being available right. until you came upon that one little seam that was maybe a foot or two long and an inch deep. And that's when you start realizing why RPs were the size they were and the shape they were, because there would just have to be one little perfect RP placement back in this unbelievably solid rock. Mm-hmm. You're going to break the cables on the RP before you ever pull a placement out there. And it was just, wow, super pumpy, uh, super bold. And then afterwards, the, the camp scene uh, down in the pines was really rowdy back then mm-hmm. it was a party every night right and uh uh i would hang out with the camp hog people from they were based out of new zealand and they had a they had a little journal that came out every once in a while called pent hog uh you could you could never publish that one these days right. <laughs> <laughs> oh it was, it was incredible and uh, I mean, I remember the hogmobile four-wheel drifting into into camp one day, and all four tires popping off the rim simultaneously, <laughs> the ground to a halt in the dirt. And, 
not unexpected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is something crazy going on all the time. So uh, for somebody, let's see, I was probably late 20s or so sure. and brought up in a, a culture of, so what if you climb hard? If you can't party hard too, what does it count? You know, I mean, you know, uh, climbers like the Vulgarians from the Gunks or, or Warren Harding were like my, my heroes. Whereas, you know, the Bulgarians were notorious for the way they treated the Appies, who were the stuck-up old-timers who stood on a lot of uh, ceremony, pomp, whatever. You know, they didn't climb as hard as the Bulgarians. And then when they had their meetings uh, in town, <laughs> as famous the Bulgarians were on the balcony when the, the Appies came out of the, the bar in uh, uh, New Paltz and the, to a shower of urine from the Bulgarians on the, <laughs> on, the, on the balcony above. And, you know, stories like that growing up with those or, you know, tales of Don Willens. Sure, and, that's who I was thinking and, of when you were know, talking was, was Willens in the whole, that kind of working class Sheffield and uh, Manchester and all those places that were the same thing when they would show up in Chamonix and, you know, basically like clear the bar with a brawl, that kind of thing. That was part of climbing fabric back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had, say, Warren Harding, who, you know, famously was the first to climb El Cap, who didn't really give a rat's ass whatever other people thought, and was happy to party his way up the first descent of the nose, while there was the stodgy Royal Robbins, who felt that El Cap deserved a lot better and, and you know, far more respect than was being shown by the party hardy Harding. But... Realistically, I mean, I don't think psychologically, uh, as Harding would call them, the Valley Christians, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Royal and, and his his ilk, were ready for that psychological leap. They held El Cap up to such a standard in their minds that they it, it was like the virgin that you'd always be a virgin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Say, sure. You know that, that 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 if that virgin were ever to lose their virginity, there was something wrong with the world, and for. Warren Harding to come by and having, you know, jugs of wine and cooked turkeys rolling up in the adult cart up to the top of the stove legs and, you know, partying down up there as he worked his way up the nose was an abomination to them. But once he did it, then all of a sudden that opened, you know, that that smashed down that psychological barrier about El Cap being just, you know, unclimbable or, or so magnificent it shouldn't be climbed. Well, some of those, uh, you know, back to the Rapleys thing, of course, the, the infamous photo of, uh, of you on Lord of the Rings, the flip-flops sucking the beer down. I'm sure you've run into plenty of people who thought you were actually <laughs> actually firing that thing in a pair of flip-flops with a beer in your hand. Uh, you know, one of the standard setting roots of the time, actually, <laughs> probably when you were there. You know, that kind of established you as one of these these guys, one of these, uh, uh, you know, maverick counterculture sort of, sort of person. What, what was it that, you know, as you began as a climber, I assume you were probably in your teens, I think, is what I read. What do you think it was about you that drew yourself to that part of the sport versus, you know, joining the, the Valley Christians end of things? Not that you were there in the well, Valley, but you know, the very serious, take this thing seriously, perform all the time. Like, what do you think it was about you that drew you that way versus the other? Uh, well, I guess we got to go back to the origin story then. Because mm-hmm. the first time I was ever exposed to climbing, I was out with some high school drinking buddies at Indian Rock. You know, we'd scored some beer, wanted to go somewhere cool to drink it. And uh, my friend Craig had done some climbing and he uh, said, let's go to Indian Rock. 
so we go there and and uh so I, first time i'd ever seen anybody go bouldering i never even heard of bouldering it looked intriguing but at the time i was just like this fat high school kid couldn't do a single pull-up but i wanted to try it and so i started going out there and i didn't have you know, climbing shoes or chalk or anything you know i just had these funky plastic sole hiking boots i didn't even have like vibram rubber on the bottom they had these like weird plastic soles some sort of you know like kind of kmart special or something and started trying to climb around and felt instantly accepted by the climbers out there if you had an interest in climbing it didn't matter if you were the you know the the, the fat non-athletic kid who didn't seem to fit in 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 high school anywhere mm-hmm. you know i didn't wasn't part of the jocks or the band geeks or the or you know the the greasers or uh, you know you named the group out there that all you know high schools just break into these little different groups. I I didn't feel like I belonged in any of them, but there was this instant feeling that wow I finally found a family. Goodness, I mean Matt and Scott and Harrison, Fred, Becca, Dave, Dylan, Mike, Amy, Strong Rob. Bert, <laughs> Galen, shit eater the dog, <laughs> Dylan and Ombre. And then even then, there was, uh, there was a couple of guys, probably 60s or so then, uh, Bruce Cook and, and Jim Crooks, who were in incredible shape. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had the best physiques of anybody out there right. at the boulders. I mean, you know, he's, I mean uh, you know, Jim Crooks was like, like uh, an older version of John Gill at the time. And so you had climbers of all ages and genders and races and everything out there all together, all bonded by this common desire just to to have fun on the boulders. Mm-hmm. And that really appealed to me. And at the same time, I was trying to you know, read everything I could about climbing. Mm-hmm. I'd go down to Berkeley Library, and the first book I got was White Spider. And when I read that, I mean, it's kind of surprising I didn't become a Valley Christian after reading that. Or maybe a Hitler youth. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> one or the other. <laughs> because, you know, I, I saw, you know, the, I mean, read all these harrowing stories of you know, people t- dying trying to do the first ascent of the north face of the Eiger and, and these, you know, narrow escapes, the, the few people that made it down alive and with their tails between their legs and all. And, but I was going, wow, these are, these are men's men. You know, they're willing to die for each other up there. And, and they're doing something really noble. You know, that time as a, 15 year old or whatever that really appealed to me like the thought of wow I, I want to be that sort of a person but then once i started learning about the bulgarians and the warren hardings of the world and whatnot and mind you this is you know i grew up in berkeley you know i was born there in 59 grew up there throughout the 60s and and early 70s and you know there was an awful lot of drugs and partying and everything going on well, so you grew up uh, in Berkeley, and th- and I want to say this, like it has to be what the early seventies when this is all going down that you're you're going out to Indian Rocks and climbing. Yeah, seventy four. Yeah, based on your age, you know, was was there any sort of political awareness in your head as far as I mean, that was like the hotbed of the anti war movement, which was still going on at that point. Um, was that any involvement, or were you trying to kind of like get even deeper to a different kind of culture uh, when you found climbing? No, it wasn't either. What I saw in climbing was an escape from all that, from politics, from school, from family, everything that could rile you up. You could go out, and while you were on the rock, you were so engaged in what you were doing, 
and you know flowing over the stone the kinesthetic beauty of the pursuit it was amazing it was the first time i did anything athletic that i felt like i had even a modicum of of ability mm -hmm. for and uh, and then once i started doing harder and harder problems and then all of a sudden you know <laughs> some of the folks in rock were going did John just do you know center on the overhang? What the fat kid? You know? I mean, that fueled my ego somewhat. Sure. You know, it got that that drove me further, and and it didn't take me long to get in shape and and you know lose the pudge and everything. And I, I feel, yeah, climbing's losing that where there's this giant push to politicize climbing and make it a, a some sort of political platform. I'm going, no, it should be an escape from that. Mm -hmm. We should be able to go there i mean i enjoyed all these people's company out there at indian rock because we talked about climbing we talked about where we wanted to go climbing next and or or what adventures we'd had that weekend before or whatever um we didn't talk about politics. we started talking about the the film right old man lightning this this quest to do midnight lightning and bouldering in particular like i can't think of another person who has this breadth of pretty much the entire history of bouldering as you do, considering that you're still bouldering, um, that it's still this important thing to you. And, you know, in 1974, bouldering in and of itself, I don't even know if it really sort of existed as this, as this defined thing and, you know, considered practice other than maybe, you know, the, the font and blue, the blue sards, they were, they were pretty deep in it by then as well. But, um, it, no, they go way back. Right. I mean, I mean, if you really want to go back, you could go back to Eckenstein in mm -hmm. like what late eighteen hundreds out in uh you know, he's got a boulder named after him out there. Right. You know, he's pursuing bouldering for for bouldering stake to some extent. No, there was plenty of people there at Indian Rock who they just loved bouldering out at Indian Rock. Mm -hmm. They you know I mean, I was all hot and bothered to try and get up the Yosemite and do things. You know, that seemed like kind of the end game or or maybe the north face of the Iger, you know, and finally live up to all that white spider stuff I'd read about, you know, Gil is already doing his thing out and, you know, uh, well, all over, uh, but particularly out in Colorado around there in the late 60s when he was in Fort Collins and developing Horsetooth and, you know, Flagstaff Mountain, lots of dedicated boulders up there. And, you know, a lot of us, to call me just a boulder is uh, kind of a huge misconception. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I, I've, I've stood on top of Denali blah, 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 then polar circus, you know, nose in a day, on and on, you know, I mean, uh, dabble in those other things, but I love bouldering the most. Mm -hmm. But if you want to go back to the kind of the origins of modern bouldering, that would be Gil. Through the 60s, you know, he was introducing the concept of uh, climbing as a gymnastic pursuit, not as an extension of hiking. Mm -hmm. You know, hiking, and then you're going up something steeper, so you learn to scramble, and then you go on something even steeper, and you learn how to ropes then you're finally going up something so steep you learn how to aid climb sure. that was all an extension of hiking and getting to to summits whereas he was looking to perfect a difficult gymnastic series of moves on the rock that fundamentally changed the sport i mean that gave your know, rise to modern bouldering and also to sport climbing then to freeing big walls and on and on and on so you know i mean gill was really the catalyst and, and most of that stuff he was probably really actually more late 50s, you know, 58 or so in Jenny Lake. And he was even putting up hard stuff earlier in the 70s, but then that was when Holloway was peaking, taking it to levels 
that weren't matched for another 30 years. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. You know, most climbers have never heard of Jim Hall. Yeah, right it's really interesting because, yeah, and, I was about to, I was uh, thinking that when you said it. And I'm, I'm from Colorado and bouldered on the front range, so I know the name. And it's, he's definitely sort of lost to history. I would swear there's still unrepeated problems of his, but that's probably not true anymore. But it seems like that oh, no. guy was. was I, I would say yeah. it's true. They're, they just aren't all that well recorded. Right. He didn't record stuff, and he, he wasn't doing it for other people. Mm -hmm. And that's why he climbed so much harder than anybody else. He wasn't, he wasn't stuck in some mindset that, oh, well, this is the hardest people are climbing. If I climb that hard, that's good enough. You know, nowadays, with all the media attention and ratings and Instagram and stuff like that, you know, what's the point in doing V20 when you'll get just as much credit if all you do is V16? But without any ratings to think of, he, he was just looking to challenge himself as much as he possibly could. And he was such a genius at climbing and so physically gifted that he just absolutely blew standards away like nobody had before, uh, you know, since Gill. Holloway's attitude wasn't a whole lot different than Gill's, but he was still free of the uh, kind of Russian pole vaulter mentality, <laughs> I, I call it, where these Russian pole vaulters would smash the world record in practice. But they were very careful that when they went to a meet and it would be official, that they would only break it by the slimmest margin they could. Because every time they did, they were rewarded by being able to move into a better apartment. So, I mean, they could smash it by six increments, but only be rewarded one better apartment. Or they could do it six times and move into that many more and more better ones. Right. So, and, and, you know, that's how climbing works now is that, you know, the reward system is set up so that if you push something by one letter grade, all of a sudden you're on the cover of every magazine and, you know, going on with the normal cast and whatnot you know you get you're you're you you are getting all these perks from climbing society that's a huge one and, too. Uh, and, 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 and even oh yeah yeah well, uh, i i can't wait for the check to come in yeah totally so, yeah, me too yeah. i'm sending you the invoice <laughs> did you have a relationship My time is money did you have a relationship with uh holloway did you know jim yeah. Okay, cool. I mean, you know, he... Because he seems like sort of a mysterious figure, you know, within... Yeah, within uh, no, no, he's... He, he, no, yeah, he, he's a very private guy. Mm -hmm. uh, I've come to know him through the years. I didn't know him that well in his prime. Mm -hmm. Climbed a lot with Jim Michael. Right, yeah. But there was Holloway and then there was everybody else. I mean, it there's really no, there's no like that, yeah. There is no equivalent today. Right. None whatsoever. Everybody knew Holloway was by far and away the best. And everybody knew they would never be as good as him. Mm -hmm. That left us all free to be able to do, you know, be as good as we could be. Right, right. But now, I mean, you know, you know, people could debate, uh, you know, whoever's the best climber in the world, you know, oh, is it Alice Magos? Or maybe it's Adam Andra or, or whatever. You know, you know they'll, they'll put up a hard climb and then the other one will go up and repeat it. And then somebody else will come out of nowhere and repeat that. And then all of a sudden they're a big name. And you don't have somebody so far ahead of everybody else that, that their stuff doesn't get repeated for 30 years. Right. I mean, you know, that's just not happening now. And I think some is because, yeah, you know, talent gets recognized early, snatched up by the media, and, uh, and then, you know, told that, well, we will reward you for these little incremental pushes mm -hmm. 
will reward you just as much as if you put up something that's not repeated for 30 years. Right. So it sets the bar lower for people. And I mean, it's hard for people to understand when you're thinking like, well, you know, how can the bar be you know, low when you're trying to do a V17 or something like that? You know, I mean, that's a pretty high bar, but it's not as high as V20. And it's coming. V20 is coming. I'll probably live to see it even. I don't have that much longer left. <laughs> I, I hope so. Um, yeah. Did you have a relationship with Gil too as you got into bouldering oh, yeah. and, and ended up in Colorado mm -hmm. for a time? Yeah. I've climbed with Gil. He did a lot of kind of moderate free soloing after he basically retired due to some injuries from you know, really hard bouldering. And so I meet him up in the middle of Wyoming by this dome somewhere between like Rock Springs and Laramie or something. <laughs> I mean, it was uh, way, way out there. And we start soloing up this thing. And it's like 500 foot face or something like that. Pretty big, 400, 500. Big enough you don't want to fall. Well, he's in his 60s at the time. And, you know, at that time, that seemed really old to me. Now I'm that old. It's pretty funny to be <laughs> looking back at it now. But looking at this guy going like, okay. At first, we're just soloing side by side, you know, just shooting the shit. And, and then it starts getting a little harder. And I know he's done the route before. So he knows the best way. I said, okay, I'll just kind of get right behind him and follow up. And then I'm just going like, wow. I mean, Gil's getting kind of old, man. What if he slips and falls? I mean, he's been at this a long time. So one of these days, he's going to slip, maybe. Oh, man, that would really suck if, if, if he slips today, because I will forever be known as the climber who was with Gil when he died. You know? Oh, firm killed, killed Gil, you know, sort of thing. And I was going like, oh, my God, I will never, ever, ever live this down. And it starts getting harder and harder. And so I'm slowing down a little bit. i got to start paying attention and going like, oh, man, this is getting kind of thin up here. And, you know, it's getting kind of like, you know, 5'8 slab climbing, you know, on site, hundreds of feet up. Then I'm, uh, I look up and it's, well, Jill's gone. He's already topped the thing out. And I'm slowing down to a creep. I'm just going like, oh, my God, what if I'm the one who falls? <laughs> John Right after the 60-something guy just walking as his warm-up. Right. Did you do, like, the pilgrimage like boulders did. I don't know if they still do this actually to find, find the old and do the old gill problems. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We took master of rock, you know, we would find all those areas. We find, you know, the, there were great photos in master of rock that showed a lot of gills problems mm -hmm. all particularly out in places like Southern Illinois and stuff like that, where it wasn't all that uh, well recorded, but you would find out the name of the park and then you walk around the park until you could match up the photo with the, with the boulder and then go try these problems. I remember, you know, Holloway and Jim Michael had taken a tour like that and they came back with a slideshow and you know, we were all like, wow, you know, they're doing gill problems, you know, and because, you know, at the time it was like, you would, you would point at something that obviously looked impossible and you'd say, ha, Gil did that. You right. know? And people, half, half the people would believe you and other half that would be in on a joke just going like, oh no, that's a, clearly impossible. But Gil was this, this mythical figure at the time. You know, we, we hadn't met him at the time, but, you know, because, I mean, I'm talking about when I was out in Indian Rock. Right. And I'd, I'd never been to Colorado yet, but we had heard of him. And we assumed that Gil problems were on a, this level far beyond anything that any of us mere mortals were climbing out at Indian Rock. But then when I went to college out in Boulder and started going out to Flagstaff and started doing some of the B1s, 
and stuff like that, going like, oh, wow, all these things. We, we, wouldn't, we didn't dare rate anything B1 out at Indian Rock because, you know, that's, that's a rating scale designed for demigods, not us. Sure. Not us humans. But then we realized, oh, we're actually, we're bowling pretty hard out in California as well. And then, you know, I started doing, you know, a few of the gill problems. The more I learned about gill and the, the more the desire to test myself against as many of his problems as I could. And so that, uh, it started a, you know, this obsession that lasted for decades, pretty much culminated with doing the thimble. So and, what, uh, l- l- what was the scale again? It's one, two, three, right? It was like. Yeah, B one is yeah, B1. no problem for Gill, and B two is really hard, <laughs> and B three was like undone. I can't, I can't quite remember. Yeah, how B three worked. B, B3 was uh, supposedly a problem that if it was done only done once, nobody else could repeat it, right. not even the person who put it up. But the problem is somebody would put something up and they want it to be called B three, and then would purposely not try to repeat their own problem because then they would have to, by definition, downrate it to B two. <laughs> So it's a, and, terrible, uh, it's a terrible, a terrible rating system, <laughs> which probably, uh, probably sort of brings us to the V it, scale. It, but <laughs> it's, pro- it's probably fine for for Gil to apply to his own problems sure. and stuff, but it didn't really translate the human nature. And and it's you know the jury's still out on whether Gil is truly human. I mean, that's so, kind of superhuman. Well, <laughs> you know the history, and and it's interesting to me that because he really does seem like he you know we just talked about Jim Holloway being this singular human in terms of bouldering. Everybody knew it, but it seems like Gil was literally a singular human. Like he was out there. If not alone, he was the only person doing these climbs um, when he did them. And it's just a, yes. it's a fascinating idea that he was such a maverick, at least in the United States, that, I mean, he basically would have to climb alone. There. He had no peers. Yeah, had no peers. That's Yeah, that's the phrase I'm looking for, yeah. That's part of his brilliance. Mm-hmm. He was entirely self-motivated, and he created an entire subsport of rock climbing basically on his own, which then changed how the rest of the world viewed rock climbing forever. Absolutely. So, you know, we were just like rapping about the scale and, and I would be remiss not to talk a little bit about the V scale, but let's maybe move venue. Oh, let's just wrap up the V scale real quick. Okay, do it. And all, ra- all rating scales, okay? All ratings, whether V ratings, French grades, uh, YDS grades, you name it. They are simply the excrement of the climbing experience. <laughs> you look at it this way. <laughs> Say, you know, you go out and you have a great bouldering session with your friends mm-hmm. and it's in this beautiful area, you know, maybe out in, in, in the Fontainebleau forest. It's like this fairy tale forest or, or you're up on the side of some incredible granite dome in, in the Sierras or something like that. And you're having the best time ever, ever with your friends. You're moving great. You're moving fluidly. You feel like a, like a climbing machine and you're sending problem after problem. And then it's like if you went to a fine restaurant for a meal and the waiter was polite, the food was great, the ambiance was incredible, your date was super engaging and witty and everything like that. And then after you've eaten that meal, what comes out the next day? A turd. Okay? So after you've, after you've taken in all the nourishment that the climbing experience has to give you, the camaraderie, the kinesthetic joy, the intermingling with nature and, and, and the, the, the self-challenge and everything. 
what pops out at the end? A grade. A single number to describe all that? That's like weighing your turd the next day after going to a Michelin star rated restaurant and going like, whoa, hey, I just fired a T8. That was great. Oh, man. Okay, so now can we go on but start talking about climbing again? Because, I mean, so here I am. I'm, I, I'm 1,600 feet up the Mordwand. The Norwegians have just knocked off the Verglas off the step. The lower, lower parts of the north face of the Eiger are fairly low angle. Have a lot of scrambling. You're not roped up. You're, you're going up uh, lower angle snow fields and through some scree. And then, then there's a, a whole number of little vertical steps you got to get through. But usually you can find a pretty easy way through. Well, the face was totally iced up that year. And from town, it looked like it was going to be easy going because there's so many options. All these ice ribbons coming down the face. It's going, oh, man, we're going to run up this thing. It's great. Well, it turned out that ice was about an inch or two thick with half an inch of air behind it everywhere, not bonded to the face at all. So the Norwegians just climbed through the step, but the ice had shattered behind them. And we had to find another way because there wasn't enough to climb there. I said, well, man, I'm just going to traverse this ledge around this corner. And the ledge just had this uh, ridge of snow right on the outside edge of the ledge where the snow had, had fallen off the face above it and settled on the outside edge of this ledge. And I'm walking along that. And it's finally it gets steep enough that I'm kind of like honolding, but facing the rock, you know. And I was going like, hmm. So I get down on my hands and knees. I start crawling around this little steep bulge. I think, okay, it doesn't look steep around the corner. I'll just stand up there and then continue over to the easy ground around the corner. I get around the corner. I stand up. And then for some reason, the snow ridge that I'm traversing just falls away in front of me. And it's going like, oh, crap. And I've, and I've destroyed it behind me by crawling along it. And I'm standing on top of like this giant jack-o'-lantern size lump of snow. So terrified that if I shift my weight from one foot to the other, it's going to crumble too. I'm going to fall down like this 15-foot cliff and then land on a 50-degree snow slope that goes for about 50 feet. Got that much time to self-arrest, and then you're off the face for good. <laughs> oh, man, I'm freaking out because I can't climb forward. I can't climb back. I don't dare shift my weight from one foot to the other. I'm screaming to my partner, Tom, I'd go got to get above me and drop drop me a rope. And he's like, he's trying to find a way up. (laughs) I don't know how long I was there freaking out. I was going like, okay, I got to throw my pack off. It weighs too much. But I have a sling around my shoulder, so I can't get the pack off. And, uh, you know, it's like I hook my tools into the verglass just to take that weight off of me. And then the the verglass crumbles and the tools go dangling off their leashes on my wrists. And I was just going, now I don't have any, even this little security of having a tool hooked in this verglass. And I am, I am starting to panic so bad. And then I go like, okay, I read about this once. I start spitting on my wool gloves and holding them against the rock. I freeze my gloves to the rock and wait for my partner to get up there. And oh, hang on, were we talking about ratings? Should we go back to that? <laughs> So if you had I'm sorry. to give that, I, I got I got I got off on a tangent and if, started talking about climbing. I mean, so dang. if you had to give that a V rating, what would you that move? No, <laughs> no, no, that to. that would have gotten a T rating for sure because I was shitting myself right. big time. <laughs> so 
Who'd you climb the freaking North Face with? Oh, well, that's Tom Cosgrove. He got above me, he got me a rope. We got, you know, I, we kept going. Right. I mean, just because I almost died, was no reason right. to go down. I mean, come on, right. this is the Eiger. Right. You know, you're, you're supposed to almost die on the Eiger. Uh, but then we got up and uh, we bivvied and we made a really rookie mistake of taking a new stove up there. It's supposed to be super efficient, but it burned half our gas the first night and we realized we're going to run out of fuel mm-hmm. and we're not going to be able to melt snow for water. We can't finish the climb. And then so next morning it's like, okay, well, do we either go up a little bit further with what fuel we have just to check things out and you know, risk getting clobbered by the notorious rock fall? <laughs> you know, it's like climbing the Eiger and going up the Eiger with the idea that you're just going to come back down is not smart. Right. <laughs> so anyway, uh, they say, okay, well, now we better bail. And the clouds start socking in and it starts snowing a little bit and stuff. And uh, this cave is just, just totally shattered limestone. And you couldn't get a piton to stick. You couldn't get any nuts. In. You couldn't get any any kind of anchor in the rock. And then uh, I'm going like, well, okay, here's this big lump of snow on the on the on the lip of the floor of the cave. We cut a bollard. And Tom had never wrapped off a bollard before. And let me tell you, you know, partway up the north face of the Iger is not where you want to do your first rappel off of a bollard. <laughs> you got these skinny nine mil ropes, and and, you, and and you've got like this big lump of snow, and you're going like these things are just going to slice that lump of snow right off. You know, <laughs> it's going to be like one of those Ginsu knife commercials where they lop the head of broccoli off or something like that. And uh, and so he's going, "Well, you go first. And uh, I'm going, "Okay." And then he thinks about it. He's going like, "Uh oh." Now if he goes first and the bollard fails, he gets the quick out. He's going to die in the next few, you know, the next half a minute or so. I'm going to be stuck up here with no ropes, <laughs> and no, I'm going to have to try to down climb all that. <laughs> no way. He says, "No, I'm going first. You back it up." <laughs> anyway, we got down, and then later that night, after getting just hammered down and climbing a shy day, Tom wants to to uh, hijack the train and drive us through the train tunnel up to the Jungfrau yoke. <laughs> And I was the slightly more sober of the two of us. And I'm like wrestling the Leatherman away from him. <laughs> He's trying to use it to, to, to open the, the door to the, to the to get into the, the cabin to, to drive the train up. <laughs> the Igar. I just go like, these are Swiss here, Tom. I, yeah, I was going to say that. This will land us in jail forever. Yeah, yeah. There's a cavern inside of a mountain that where you would still be. Yeah, I was just thinking that same mm-hmm. thing. I'm like. Yeah, the Swiss don't fuck around with that kind of stuff, man. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine that the people listening to this show, this is the first time that they had ever fathomed that uh, that John Sherman tried to climb the north face of the Iger. So that's a pretty damn good story, actually. <laughs> well, I tried to go back next year, and then Tom didn't show up. I was like, oh, man. But I ended up uh, meeting up with uh, Gary Neptune and Climbing Mont Blanc, so that was cool. Another another absolute legend of yeah. the sport. Yeah, total legend. If you haven't had him on, man, you should get Gary on. Yeah, man. I'd love he to have Gary on. Yeah, I mean, I remember yeah. him being like, even in my later climbing years, this you know notorious luddite around uh, around gear and and wearing his Swami belt laden. I mean, hell, maybe he still does. Maybe oh, still wears yeah. Oh, you yeah, no, we we would joke like you know, when we were going up Mont Blanc. I'm going like, oh man, if we get buried in an avalanche and you melt out of the glacier, 
a year later, they're going to think you were buried for 50 years when they see the gear you ride. Well, yeah, and the irony of all that is that, like, he has this, like, or had this, like, cutting-edge gear shop that had, like, the best, oh, at yeah, any moment, the best gear ever made, right? Um, and, yeah, and he's, well, uh, that, that, was Gary, his, that was his thing. Gary carried a golf club to the top of Mount Everest. Right. That's Gary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, somebody gives him a golf club. Oh, I really dig seeing a photo of my golf club on top of Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. Gary says, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> what a guy, man. So let me ask you a little bit about Waco. Um, be, you know, I was thinking of eras, and I was thinking of, of are a little more synonymous with, you know, John Sherman, the character, if you will, than, than climbing the north face of the Eiger. Um, and also to put it in perspective of kind of finding some of these places, I don't know if you were – in, in a first wave down there or what, but you know, to put it in perspective, like pre-internet information about these places, you, you just really had to stumble upon it or hear it through the grapevine or, or literally find it on your own. Well, I, I didn't find it. Sure. Um, there people had climbed there since the late fifties. Heck even mm -hmm. Royal Robbins was, uh, he was stationed in Fort Bliss back in the late fifties. And he ended up, uh, doing some climbs out in Waco. But, uh, I was out in Joshua Tree and met some locals from El Paso. And, you know, back then it was widely considered that there was no such thing as climbing in Texas or in, in like half the states of the nation. Right. I mean, it was just, it was just an established fact that there, there wasn't. And they're going like, no, no, and showing us pictures and going like, really? Well, that, that does look kind of cool. And, you know, Talk us into going out there and checking it out. And, and man, when I got there, you know, the, I already had a solid foundation in bouldering from, you know, my time in, you know, Colorado and Indian Rock as well. And when I saw all the boulders there, seen some development, but nobody had really devoted themselves to the bouldering solely there. Mm -hmm. Mike Head, he was the best of the locals there. And he put up some amazing boulder problems like the mushroom roof and the bucket roof. So he certainly had the skill and the strength to have torn up the boulders there, but he's more interested in establishing these incredibly bold, ballsy trad climbs. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, you know, a lot of people are familiar with Sea of Holes, but not that many people know that he free soloed that on the first ascent when it was full of loose rock, you know, just walked up to the wall and started climbing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since then, Seems more bolts get added every year to that to make it safer and safer, but it was as unsafe as it could get when he did it. His trad climbs there were just mind blowing. I got super scared on an awful lot of them. But then with the advent of sport climbing in the mid eighties, and this was in the early eighties, but mm -hmm. you know, there wasn't really you know, cordless rotary hammers hadn't been introduced yet. So uh bolting was very limited. If if we want to go kind of into the layers of history of you know, bouldering development. Bouldering was quite popular back in the 70s, I would say, uh, and into the early 80s. There was a lot of us who, who did it. But then when sport climbing came along, and, and mind you, we didn't have pads back then. So bouldering just beat the hell out of you. I mean, you know, you constantly had bruised heels and, and you know, a, set, a session bouldering, if you were really bringing it, you, you knew you were going to get thumped a few times. Then a lot of the kind of more gymnastically inclined climbers in the mid 80s would naturally become boulders when sport climbing came along with the advent of the cordless rotary hammer. All of a sudden, they didn't have to get beat up. 
they could go climb gymnastic style climbs and just hang on the end of the rope and and do it. So that kind of took some of the steam uh, out of bouldering then as, you know, this whole new generation of climbers didn't see the attraction in it. That is until pads and V grades came out. All of a sudden, bouldering was safer. It was more comfortable. And there was a yardstick to measure your ego against other people's. And, uh, and that, that accelerated to the point where, wow, now it's more convenient. You don't have to have a partner. You don't have to wait in line at the one warm up and rifle. You know, you can go and just get on with climbing Mm -hmm. and climbing the hard moves right away. You don't have to do the approach pitch. You don't have to do the, any of that stuff. And that's where it's led up to where it is today, where it's one of the most popular forms of the sport, if not the most popular form. Let me, uh, I've actually often Despite your efforts, despite your efforts to smear it whenever you can. Well, it's funny because I started also bouldering in the era pre-pad and- um, You bouldered? I did. Yeah, no, I, you know, come on. I know I don't have- Oh my God, he's coming out, folks. I bouldered. um, What a, how great is this? I learned to climb at horse tooth. So I top roped in some of that stuff, but I definitely bouldered plenty up there. And it was the, it was the, the piece of carpet land, you know- and and I've always just kind of wondered, like, why didn't we think of bringing some sort of pad with us? Like, because I've, you know, I landed on my heels where you just pop off from like two feet up and just like, you know, you don't even have your legs bent yet. And you just slam into the dirt underneath the eliminator or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. so many times. And I'm just like, why didn't it occur to us to like, hell, go buy a blow up pad? I mean, that probably wouldn't have worked that, that- well, but. You know, you know, we, we could have bought one for like nine bucks, you know, at Kmart at that point, you know, pre-Walmart kind of. But that that's like, a great why, question why? that I don't have an answer for <laughs> <laughs> because we took spotting from gymnastics. Right. Why wouldn't we take pads from exactly? Gymnastics? Yeah. Just go, you know, up an and, old gymnastics pad. And, like and, a five you know, foot I mean, section. there were some things like, uh, you know, the the dorm mattresses that would get stolen from from the Yosemite Lodge and right. dragged out and stuck underneath backer cracker and stuff like that. So there, it wasn't like we didn't pad landings. Mm-hmm. We just didn't have a specific device dedicated to it. You know, I mean, we, we would take our sweaters and our packs and whatever and, you know, layer them over rocks. There's one time I even, you know, built a landing out of cow pies to, <laughs> uh, you know, because there was this nasty rock, I didn't want to bruise my heel on right. it. So you know, I put these cow pies down for to uh, uh, to do it. So you know, it wasn't like the idea of padding didn't exist. But it wasn't until uh, Fred Nikovic and Donnie Harden uh, were having a particular heel bruising session out of City of Rocks in New Mexico, and these were two of the El Paso locals who mm-hmm. also, you know, along with you know, Mike and Dave had, uh, you know, Russ Harmon and you know, Donnie and Fred, they. They were the main developers when I first showed up at Waco, and uh, and so they went back to El Paso and they made you know a couple. I mean, the first pads were twenty four or thirty inches by thirty inches with a uh, an inch of foam, and between two two layers of shag carpet. And then uh, Greg Burns, uh, another climber back then, he made a couple of those, you know, uh, just mimicking the design of uh, Fred and Donnie. He gave me one, and I was out there. All the time, I mean, because I would I would live out at the park. These mm-hmm. you know the El Paso locals, they had jobs and stuff, so you know they would they get out there on the weekends or whatever. They get out there when they could, 
but I was out there just full time running around the park developing stuff. And then I, you know, instantly, like first time you use one of the pads, you're like, oh man. And so I started making my own. I started making bigger and bigger ones. And, and then people started seeing what I was doing and they were started, you know, grabbing couch cushions and duct taping them and bringing them out. And, and, and so for a couple of years there, there was all these homemade pads running around. And then I was in Bishop hanging out with uh, Bruce Pottinger and Jeff Neer over at Kinaloa. Uh, they made harnesses and uh, they had super cool t-shirts and stuff, chalk bags and, and all. And Bruce was going like, we should make this and sell it. It's kind of like, who would buy this? I mean, when you can just make it yourself with a speedy stitcher and some, some contact cement and some scrap carpet out of the dumpster behind a carpet store. <laughs> but uh, he had more business savvy than I did. But, but we sat down together and then we designed, you know, what is basically the, the same pad everybody uses 30 years later now, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the nylon sleeve with the dual density foam in it and the backpack straps and, and all that. And, you know, now, you know, they might have, you know, they've gotten a little thicker or they've gotten a, a, an extra fold in them or a few bells and whistles. But the basic nylon sleeve with the removable foam, multiple densities of foam, that hasn't changed at all. I'd like to see that change. I, I mean, I think after 30 years, there must be some advancements in material technology that would allow us to make safer pads because so many people are breaking their ankles, myself included, twice now hitting the edge of pads broken both of both of them now the pads are getting too thick and if we can do something to make them thinner but still as absorbent that would be great i did some experiments myself this last year with viscoelastic polymers and trying to use that as cushioning material unfortunately this is something for some company that's going to profit off of it and make mm-hmm. some money to yeah, invest into it you know one of the bigger climbing companies a black diamond or a petzl or something like that should really get on this and I would be happy to help them. By the way, just give me a call. Um, <laughs> same with the shoe companies. The other thing is there's not a single safe bouldering shoe on the market. Not one. Zero. There's a ton of shoes that are advertised as being great for bouldering. And performance-wise, they are. But safety-wise, no. Now, when I started climbing, we climbed in EBs, which came up several inches above your ankle. Now, the highest shoe you can get is a TC Pro or one of the myriad of knockoffs of that predates TC Pro. But they only come up halfway up your ankle bone, just enough to keep it from getting scraped when you, you know, stuff it in into an off whip. So they provide no protection for the ligaments that hold your tib fib down to your calcaneus, your talus bones and whatnot, your, your foot bones <laughs> to your leg bones, basically. Mm-hmm. There's a whole slew of ligaments in there and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, which is why, you know, you, you don't see basketball players or or football linemen or whatever only taping up to the middle of their ankle. Right. No, they tape up way above because they're constantly landing on each other's feet and, and rolling their ankles. And um, no shoe manufacturer has ever attempted market they may have made prototypes i don't know i uh, but i've been to any number of companies and had zero interest i mean because they, they call, we sell these things as fast as we can lo- load them off the ship from china mm-hmm. why would we change anything right we're, we're printing money here guys yeah well you know what what about that don't you get i'm just going like but how about 
we print even more money by you know marketing safety equals performance and this is what what people don't get i get it because i've spent a lot of the last four years on crutches ruptured my achilles broke my other ankle tore my subscapularis off all in the last four years and so i've been on the sidelines a lot does my performance get better when i'm on the sidelines no it's a giant struggle to mm. just get back to where I was before I got injured. Right. I'm spending all those months just trying to get back to where I was while everybody else who's not injured is getting better. So if they made a safe bouldering shoe, people would start bouldering harder mm -hmm. because they're not going to spend time on the sidelines. And you don't have to sacrifice performance by making high-top shoes. I modify all kinds of shoes to be high-tops for myself. They'll laugh at me all the time. I don't care. I laugh at them when I see them on crutches. So let, 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 we're getting towards the end here. So let, let me ask you, we're, we've been kind of treading into this territory. I haven't even now. talked about climbing with Leighton Core. Oh, yeah. Well, tell me about climbing with Leighton Core. <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's a dream that I had that I never, that I missed. Oh. Uh, yeah. I mean, he was like that. You know, you talk about Gil, some of these people, Holloway, that like you kind of revered in this, you know, intense way. It's like for me, Core was the guy. Um, which is why we're, you know, I was bouldering a bit up at Horsetooth, but I was also up in the park aid climbing, even though mm -hmm. it was like the, you know, the eighties, well past the aid climbing era. Um, but yeah, late in core. Yeah, no, hero of mine as well, because I've climbed a lot in the desert and mm -hmm. done a number of his climbs there and got to know him. Uh, he was living out in Kingman and there's these, some extent, pretty scruffy cliffs out by Kingman, but, uh, you know, at this point, he was well into his 70s and undergoing kidney dialysis every third day. And so, you know, he'd spend a day in dialysis and the next day he'd spend recovering. And then the other day, he all he wanted to do was go climbing. But he was, he was terribly weak. His health was really failing at this point, but he still loved climbing so much. It was amazing. And so uh, I said, yeah, I'll go with you, man. God, it's a chance to climb a latent core. Are you kidding me? You don't turn that down, you know? And so uh, I said, well, I got this route I want to put up, you know? And I was going, like, okay, well, of course he wants to put up a first ascent. It's latent core, you know? And we hike up to this cliff, and I'd already been putting up a bunch of first ascents on this cliff with a friend of mine, and points up at this thing. And he's going, like, oh, we're going to go up here. And we go, okay, let's do it. And we're at the base, and, you know, he, he he can't see very well and stuff. And, I mean, he can barely see footholds to put his feet on. So I'm kind of, you know, I'm pretty nervous because you know, this is like climbing with Gil again. But I mean, this, like Gil was in fabulous shape at the time, you know. I was just going like, well, he's, he's kind of old. He's rolled the dice a lot. But I mean, you know, Leighton Core, he was obviously poor health with his kidney failure, but he was still Leighton Core. And so you're going like, well, don't, you know, I've learned... <laughs> Over the ages, never to underestimate anybody, particularly one with a who has earned a reputation like Leighton Core has. So I, I start up and I lead a few pictures to this ledge, and then Leighton just he just can't stand not leading. I'm thinking I'm thinking way better at this. It's like um, I don't know if it's that good idea. You can barely see your footholds and stuff. But basically, I got to this ledge, and he didn't like the looks of this chimney. He was going to have to go to get up to the ledge. I don't like chimneys. Which, coming from Leighton Core, sounded really funny when you think of how many chimneys you've done on Leighton Core routes. But maybe he'd had enough of them at that point. <laughs> anyway, so he, he stops just below the belay ledge 
avoids the last few chimney moves and says, I think I'll just go up and lead around the corner here. Let's go, well, I think it looks easier to go over this way. Nah, nah, I don't like that. Here, reach into my knapsack, which I carried up there, and grab me my pins. <laughs> he didn't like placing nuts or cams. He, he wasn't comfortable with that. So I pulled this rack of really old pins out of the uh, backpack. And he starts going around the corner. And I can, you know, he's about to disappear from sight, but I can see him hammering this one pin. And it sounds like he's knocking it into a styrofoam ice chest. The rock is so bad. I mean, it's like, oh, God, this is just so horrible. And he dis disappears around the corner. The rope's slowly going out bit by bit. He's making progress. And then all of a sudden I hear, oh, no. Oh, no. Leighton doesn't curse. Thank you. <laughs> Anybody else would be, be you know, screaming ex expletives at that point. And next thing I know, he is off sliding down the rock and, and taking, according to him, his first leader fall in 40 years. And the pin holds. Woo! <laughs> Thank goodness. But then he comes around a corner. He's just bleeding everywhere. I pull him up onto the ledge. And I'm looking at him, and you know his, his eyes really aren't focusing too well. I'm like, oh man, Clayton Court's going to die on me! And uh, you know I'm, I'm I'm poking around. He's got this big lump in his arm. I'm just going like, oh my god, he's broken his arm. He's on all these blood thinners for dialysis. He's going to bleed out on me, and there's nothing I can do about it. This kind of internal injury you just can't do. I mean, I've had I've had my woofer class, but this is one of those ones that tell you, sorry. You can't do anything about this. Uh, it turns out that's like one of the, a stint he had in his arm or something like that, or, or some some port in there that they right. that they that they use for dialysis. I go, Phew. and then it's like you know we both calm down a bit. I don't think I was the most calming influence because I'm just totally freaking out. I'm just like, oh my god, first time I climbed with Leighton Core, I'm going to kill him. Oh man, oh man, this is horrible. And then. I'm trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to get down this thing? We're already like three pitches up, and, and it's zigzagged all over the place. So it's going to be really convoluted trying to lower or repel out of there. And I'm trying to figure out, and then Leighton's like, we're not going down. <laughs> and it was just classic. The last thing, the very last thing Leighton Court ever wanted was to be the reason you retreated on a climb. It's like, no, we're going to the top. So I laid a couple more pitches to the top. He follows them, get up to the top, come down, and then, you know, check up on him a few days later. Hey, how's it go, go, going, Leighton? Uh, and he's like, what are you doing next weekend? <laughs> we got to go climbing. <laughs> it was incredible. The guy has it, the climbing in his blood so deep. It, it was just amazing. Wonderful yeah. to see. Yeah, I, try, I, I early on in this thing's history, I, I made a sort of feeble attempt to, uh, to talk to, to Leighton Core, and um, you know, he he kindly, kindly said no, and I, I left him alone. But, uh, but yeah, it would have been a dream uh, to spend some time with him anyway, even if we weren't talking on this this thing, because yeah, he was a huge inspiration to me back in the day, like long after his climbing career, yeah. you know, because I read I read climb climb. We haven't talked about that on the Norman Castle in a while, but um, that Colorado. Oh, hang on, hang on. Let, 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 I'm, I'm sorry because we got to catch yeah. up here. Right. Uh, I meant to do this at the beginning. Enough about me, Chris. Tell us about your time in the guide shack. Your feelings about Yosemite locals. How crowded rifle is now. 
uh, your project in Indian Creek, and some adventures from the Black Canyon, because that's right. ding, 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 five. Everybody playing your normal cast drinking drinking yeah. game. They all just got. I want to get that up. out of the room at the at the beginning, so that they all they, they were already five drinks behind and had had to catch up. Yeah, they just you know, got loaded. I, right I was. Right at I, the end. We 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 didn't we didn't even get into the stuff that that I wanted to say that they're going to have trouble re- unremembering unless they uh-huh. had five beers. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let me ask you this about the about bouldering. You know, it was this very much kind of a non mainstream part of the sport. You know, when you started it as well as when, in the eighties, you were talking about how it kind of just fell out of favor before pads showed up, and then it it kind of came back into favor and. You know, I didn't feel like, you know, Gil was out there by himself and it was a pretty small group of practitioners in terms of the hard end of things or the, the real exploratory end of things for a long time. And now it's like grown into this part of the sport that thanks to gyms is maybe as popular as any other part of the sport um, because it's because of its easy entry level. You're you've been around a long time. You you left you left the, the bouldering scene for a bit. You're heavily back into it although um waiting to to come back for some injuries right now if there's anything that's been lost from the from the sport or has there you know the the flip side of that coin do you think um what's improved or what's better about the sport since uh since you, you well you started some it? idiot came up with this grading system that just sucked the soul right out of the sport turned people into these just like you know narrow-minded number chasers and they they don't see the deeper benefits the joys of bouldering and so yeah man if i ever meet that guy i should just punch punch him in the face i mean damn it you know but it was way more of a soul sport back before the pads and the v-grades and stuff because you had to be willing to take a beating you know to, to go out there and do it you know, were you guys good at down it, it, climbing? Very. Yeah, we were I good mean, at. Like- we were good at falling too. We were good at spotting. There's hardly anybody in America I would trust spotting me now, because that skill has disappeared. I mean, it's a skill. Mm-hmm. It's a sacred trust. It's not some chore. It's not something where you just stand around waving your hands and then jump backwards when the person falls and go, "Dude, are you all right?" I mean, <laughs> it, it. That's. That's not spotting. We call that snotting because it's not spotting. Right. And there's, you know, 99% of the boulders out there are snotters, not spotters. You should take as much pride in your spotting as you do in your boulder. I remember well, people, having good spotters, you know, like knowing yeah. this guy. I mean, Jonathan Thiesinger, you might you might know Jonathan from, from back in Colorado as well, but big guy too. But it was always like, oh, great. He's down there, you know, like he's going to put me on my mm-hmm. feet. You know, I just know that's yeah. going to happen. And you always wanted to go bouldering with him. Right. And that's my point. You become a good spotter. All of a sudden, you're the first person people call to go bouldering with, including people you want to hook up with. So there. Right. <laughs> but I mean. Another, yeah. re- another reason to co- become a great spotter. <laughs> right. But, you know, you're back in the game, right? And, and, oh, yeah. You know, and Deep. the base, the base of uh, the base of midnight lighting is, is never want for, for some other folks crowding around. So. You know, what are you seeing in the sport or what's drawn you back and what's, uh, what's, you know, what's left of the soul, if you will? Have you, found, have you found a piece of that as you've gotten back into it in the modern mm, age? Yeah, I guess that would be an interesting thing about, you know, this project to try and repeat the lightning after, you know, 30 years since Latin mm-hmm. lasted. It was, 
you know, I've been out there a number of times over the last four years. And I've met a lot of cool people who, mm-hmm. you know, when put a bunch of pads underneath it, all of a sudden people change their plans for the day. And right. all of a sudden, oh, man, let's try this because, oh, somebody padded it all up for us. Uh, you know, uh, they can't stop themselves. I don't blame them. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, anyway, <laughs> it's like putting putting an open bar in front of me or something or you. Right. <laughs> right. Anyway, there's been a number of people there who, you know, when I was just there, oh, just in May, which is way too late for me. I mean, it was it was hot enough and, uh, that I didn't feel conditions were good enough for me to send. And, yeah, honestly, mm-hmm. at this stage in my career, it's probably limit bouldering. But a couple other people did it while I was there. And, and uh, one of them, his girlfriend came up to me and said, I don't think these guys would ever tell you this, but I've never seen them try so hard. And they did it because you were there with them, climbing with them. And then a number of other people, you know, particularly, you know, climbers my age, have told me, wow, seeing you get back into shape for this made me realize that, you know, getting out of, sh- out of shape at my age is, is not a given. It's a choice that you make. You know, you mm-hmm. choose to suck. You know, you choose to take your foot off the gas. Once you once you make that choice, it's very very hard to come back. I'm I'm not going to sugarcoat that. I had to work incredibly hard to get back in shape, and over sixty now. I mean, you know, uh, unfortunately, I I decided let's see if I could do a one arm today, and I could only do about half of one. But uh, I still did passable front lever, which is not bad for being sixty two. And I was doing really good ones last year. You know, being able to inspire others through. You know, them seeing my passion for the sport and taking on a challenge that seems very daunting. Let me ask you one one more kind of deeper question, as much as we've tried to avoid them. You know, we've talked about, you know, you late in cores past, and we don't consider, I think, when we talk about the legendary sort of epics of climbing, we don't consider bouldering this like death defying thing. Um, But the fact is, is that you've just been in it so long as to have these people who've been around you pass away. It's like, so as a question, who, who do you miss climbing with? That's not around anymore. Robbie Slater. We were the team. Yeah. Tell me about that a little bit. I mean, he didn't like bouldering, (laughs) but I mean, we did, you know, tons of climbing in El Dorado and the desert, um, you know, climbed out in Yosemite and (laughs) both love sheep jokes I mean, you know, uh, he didn't drink, so I didn't have to worry about him stealing my beers. <laughs> he could drive. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he had exactly. your designated driver around. Yeah, that- yeah, yeah. He, 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 uh, he was attracted to a different uh, uh, physical type of woman than I was. I mean, so there was no, like, competition <laughs> along, along those lines. But there's plenty of joking going back and forth. And it was mm-hmm. always... It was always a riot. It was always a laugh. And he was always so full of energy, so positive that you could just feed off of his energy. If you were out of energy, he had more than enough for both of you. And so, yeah, he, when he died on K2, man, I was, I was crushed. Mm. And so were a lot of people. I, and, you know, I, I hate to pick out just one. I mean, because mm-hmm. I've had so many friends die climbing. That's why I, don't dabble much in alpine or ice climbing because most of my friends died doing one or the other. You know, few in rock climbing accidents, but mostly, mostly you know, avalanches, you know, chunks of ice hitting them, or racks collapsing. Mm-hmm. 
that sort of thing. He was actually an inspiration to me too. Early on, we we crossed paths in the Fisher Towers um, when he was oh yeah <laughs> mission to do all of them or all of the summits, all of the tagged summits at that point. And and I remember, oh yeah, and I did the yeah you know, the Doric and Citadel with him. And and I remember him. I was talking about going to Yosemite. Hadn't been there, and I was like, well. I, you know, I think I'll probably do the Zodiac. I'll probably be good enough to do the Zodiac. And he just like burst out laughing because I had already, you know, I'd already done a bunch of gnarly stuff in the Fisher Towers, but I just assumed everything was gnarlier in Yosemite. And he was just like, dude, you're not going to want to do the Zodiac. Like, and that, you know, he was like, you should do, you know, Wyoming Sheep Ranch, like, you know, of his sheep jokes. So, um, but yeah. yeah, so he was, he was an inspiration to me too, in the early days, uh, sitting around the campfire and, in in uh, in the Fisher Towers, such a rad dude. Oh man. Yeah. And he always had a wicked smile on his face. Like he was in on some joke that you weren't in on quite yeah. yet, but you would quite, be yeah. soon. <laughs> uh, well, cool, John, I'm, I'm glad you're back in the scene. And, uh, I think that you're right about being an inspiration to some people, um, getting back into this, uh, trying to do this boulder problem, whatever happens. And I ho- I'm hoping your injuries are, are healing up and you're going to get to it this fall. I'm grateful. Cause you didn't ask me what I'm grateful for. <laughs> All right, folks, thanks for listening. And thanks to John Sherman for sitting down across the internet tubes and also thanks to spencer tank smith of the rv project among other things for helping get that connection done and get that recording done i'll be mentioning some updates from him about the joe's valley fest coming up and now i'm heading out to the festival here in lander so hopefully we'll see you out there and if i missed you this time maybe we'll run into you at the crags and of course, don't forget to check your knot. And why don't you go over and check Kyler Pallister's knot for him. Over there at GoFundMe.com, throw down for Kyler Pallister. It'll feel good. I promise. sent back until my task is done.